everyone, welcome to my podcast, Conversations with David. I am your host, David Owasi, and on this podcast, we're talking to accomplished professionals and entrepreneurs across the country. We're learning about what keeps them passionate, what keeps them going, and we're also talking about some of the lessons learned along the way. Now, I am here with my friend, someone who I've had lots of respect for over the years, Jeff Consul. Why don't you introduce yourself, Jeff? Hey, hey, David, how's it going? My name is Jeff Consul. I'm a professional coach originally from Canada, but now based in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. One of my key roles right now is I do a lot of development and design work for what uh, the learning paths look like for organizations around the world. For the tech ed slash complete university innovation company, <laughs> Mind Valley, and they're a they're a big deal over here uh, and and globally now. So yeah, absolutely. And you know, we'll talk about Mind Valley uh, shortly. But I just wanted to start out with uh, how I got to know you, and I got to know you through uh, College Pro uh, Business Ownership Career Days and uh, Entrepreneurship. Yeah. So can you just share with me, you know, your fascination for that entrepreneurship each? Why were you interested in entrepreneurship in the first place? Sure. Um, I think for, for me personally, entrepreneurism was, uh, or starting my own business was kind of a means to, means to an end. I didn't have a lot of funds to really kind of throw around for university and education. So I, I got initially involved with College Pro as a way of making money so that way I can live. And then after that, I kind of the work that you need to do to be successful in that environment led me down the road of personal development and then uh, coaching and then and then the rest is history. For sure, for sure. So almost like a means to an end, a way to survive, and it became more than that after you got into it for a little while. Absolutely, yeah. For sure. And what was your first in business like? I know you have shared with me, you know, now many conversations over the years, the pain and the suffering of your first year of business ownership and some of the, you know, the, the big uh, uh, school of hard knocks, if you will. Can you just share with me kind of what your first year of business ownership was like? Yeah, um, I guess... The first year of business would be uh, the most fun you never want to have twice. Uh, essentially, when you get the chance to operate your first business, you get kind of woken up to the understanding that you're only as good as the work that you're able to build and the structures in the organization you're able to build. And it, it causes a great deal of maturity to happen or a great deal of maturity to happen very quickly. So. Yeah, it's, it's an intense experience. Absolutely. And the reason why I'm asking that question, Jeff, is you know, a lot of people who are listening to our podcast right now and our conversation are probably thinking, you know, should I start my own first business? Should I do this whole entrepreneurship thing that everyone has been talking about? It sounds pretty cool. But no one is really telling them about, you know, the hard struggle of the first year. And, and you no, know, I coach a number of you know, businesses like that. And they come in with a whole different expectation. And they're just complaining, David, I didn't know it was supposed to be tough like this. That was kind of why I was looking to get your, you know, your take on, on that first year. What should someone who is looking to go into entrepreneurship, what should you, what would you advise them to expect in that first year? And what would that first year look like for them? And I know all, all businesses are, kind of, are very different, but, but based on your experience, what should they be expecting? Yeah, I think that that's, I think that that's really, really uh, a tough one to, you can't nail it down because Ultimately, lots of businesses are different and lots of people are different. Uh, so there's a lot of variables. But if you were trying to 
I think the the biggest piece of advice or the thing that most entrepreneurs, business owners, or people who ever lead their own projects uh, can kind of validate or, or nod their head to is the idea that more often than not, you get into these sorts of situations because you want to uh, pursue a certain level of freedom and decision-making capacity and the... Uh, the process of taking ownership over something, putting your name on it, and uh, going through creating it is far from a freeing experience. It can be a very uh, long process of commitment, as well as uh, kind of an understanding that you're going to have to be in a certain place at a certain time doing certain things for, uh, for a very long period of time. And I think that, that that freedom can be a bit of an illusion. Yeah, I like I like uh, the the idea of freedom being an illusion. Totally makes sense. I felt certainly in some ways in my first day it was great to be my own boss, but then of course that comes with a lot of responsibilities and and uh, and problems, good problems. So when you look at uh, your you know couple of years in business ownership and entrepreneurship, uh, especially through college school before you moved into coaching, what would you say were the biggest takeaways? that really shaped your perception and your ideas and knowledge of entrepreneurship, any sort of takeaways uh, or learnings over the, over the years of business ownership? Mm. Well, I think most recently, it's just the understanding that um, you have to understand why, because <laughs> all of the stuff, the shit that comes out of people's mouths in conversations like this are the things that get said again and again and again, right? They're, they're the tropes and the cliches like, mm-hmm. oh, you have to make sure that uh, you set your goals for the right reasons. You have to make sure that you kind of account for your time. That's going to be really important. Uh, don't forget to really be passionate and really think and manifest your own, uh, your own delivery. I think the the most interesting thing that I've learned in the last few years of entrepreneurism and setting your own goals is more often than not, you've been told what goals you should set. And when you kind of dig a little bit deeper, when you start kind of looking at the numbers and you, you start kind of bumping up against things, you'll realize that a lot of the time, the things that you're after, the things that you're trying to achieve are, are actually accomplished with much smaller goals than you'd set out for yourself. It doesn't really require you to do a million dollar business or a $2 million business to have quite a substantially well-off life. And I think that de-escalating our goals, learning how to look and recognize things that you need to eliminate from your time are important, are important aspects. That's the big le- biggest lesson for me. When I stopped needing to be the one who needed to solve the world's problems, my life got substantially better and my projects got more interesting. You know, that is a very, very interesting point to make because uh, in my recent conversation with Leighton Healy and uh, Leighton is someone who's been very important in both of our journeys in entrepreneurship, he actually broke down the the sort of three to four types of entrepreneurs. Uh, there are, I think, number one, he said there was the uh, lifestyle. The legacy, lifestyle, legacy, and then the, yeah, yeah. So I yeah. think the, the lifestyle is kind of what you're referring to. Someone who basically just wants to support their life by running a business, they want to have their vacation, you know, two, three times a year. I kind of just live a pretty comfortable, normal life. And then we have the exit-oriented entrepreneur, someone who wants to build a business just for the purpose of selling it, right? And uh, selling it to a bigger company or, you know, whatever. And then we have the legacy entrepreneur who wants to solve one of the biggest worst problems, you know, the space problem or the water problem, or like the Microsoft and the Bill Gates. 
And then mm -hmm. we have what it actually calls con artists. <laughs> so these are people who are entrepreneurs. They want to be entrepreneurs, but they don't want to put in the work. They want to just be entrepreneurs and name only. They're happy to you know, send out all the business cards about them being CEO of something that does nothing really. Um, and mm -hmm. it, it kind of just broke all that. But I'm very curious you know, to really ask you a follow-up question based on your realization of why that is important. Why do you think it's important to really understand the type of entrepreneur you are? Because like you mentioned, it helps you focus on what is most important to you, not trying to compare yourself to other people and really being able to handle projects that makes you satisfied, happy, and more fulfilled. Yeah, I don't think it, it's as simple as identifying what category you are, right? I think that um, we need to be careful about things like that because it's, it has the has the same benefit of calling yourself a Slytherin or a Hogwarts, or like mm -hmm. a Gryffindor, right? People are quite fluid. They transform from year to year and their different life, their different plans, things, how things change, whether you plan on having kids or your wife gets pregnant or a tragedy happens in your life, it's going to shape your motivations and impact mm -hmm. you. Right. So the reasons why you start a business can change substantially throughout the time by the time you finish the business. So I don't know how useful it is to kind of label ourselves with such black and white, um, black and white labels. Right. Uh, however, I think that there's wisdom in taking the time to understand that your intention, what are your intentions of get it like why are you running this business is it for legacy is it currently for the idea that you want to solve the world's problems are you trying to uh make enough money to to make ends meet or are you trying to achieve freedom and then to and then take to time to unpack is that the easiest way of doing it because most of the time starting a business is a huge responsibility and it it has consequences right absolutely so, so I guess what I'm really uh, hearing from you is really just understanding your why at the end of the day and being honest with yourself about why you're doing this. Like, are you doing this because you want to generally care about a problem? Are you doing this to have ends meet? Uh, and when you're able to understand that why, it really guides how you view the business and how you approach it moving forward. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that comes like it's easier said than done. Right. Sure. Understand again, it's, it fits into that stack of cliches you hear. It's like, understand your why. Start with why. Make sure you your why. When I was 18, my why was to be filthy rich and to travel the world. Like, that was my why. That was as deep as it got. And if you convince yourself that it's like, I know my why, and that's somehow the big deal, that's not nearly as important as your skill of watching your why, knowing what your why is today, and knowing what your why is tomorrow and shifting. Mm -hmm for that why because that flexibility is important right that you got to take it one step further you have to be able to ask yourself later why was that important to me why should it be important now who benefits from me wanting this those are those are important questions so i, I advocate a flexible a flexibility of why <laughs> absolutely fascinating and uh, thanks for the insight on the you know what that's you know it, it's a very good point to make it's a it's almost a moving target if you will and trying to <laughs> Make sure yeah, that it is it's it's a moving target right mm -hmm. yeah how many business strategies do you start doing one thing and then it profits doing something completely unexpected right it's making sure that you remove your ego from the equation because quite frankly most of the time you have no idea what the hell you're talking about sure sure <laughs> so and let's make a little bit of a pivot here you know you also a business coach especially you know you were one of my business coaches in my third year or second year of business i believe 
what mm-hmm. was uh, what was that coaching experience like for yourself, helping all the business owners you know, walk that journey you walk uh, yourself? What was that like? Uh, well, being a coach, like being a coach as a job description is substantially different than choosing to be a coach. And that was really cool. That was a cool experience when I was working with you. My job was to arrive and, and provide coaching services, even though I haven't really identified whether I was a coach yet or not, which is, is interesting. So um, for me, it was incredible. Like I remember, I remember times where I was not fit to be a coach, right? I was, I was uh, at times where I was emotionally, I shouldn't have been the one pouring into other people. Um, I learned what it meant to provide coaching services and what it's like to provide coaching where you don't always have the answers and what are the other emotional support roles that you can play when you don't have the answers and how does that impact people. So very fulfilling experience. Uh, it was it was awesome. College Pro was really good for that. Absolutely. And of course, your role is sort of evolved. Your coaching <clears throat> has evolved. Uh, your skills have evolved over the years. How would you say you know, your skills or your approach to coaching has evolved and grown over the years now, considering all the things you now know about coaching. Sure. I, I think that I, for me, my role as a coach is definitely, I've integrated it as a part of the work that in the services that I provide, right? It's no longer a job description for me as much as like, when it says, like, are you a painter? It's like, yeah, I can, I, I paint, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, no, I, co- I coach and I am a coach. I provide coaching. Uh, with that journey came uh, a lot of fun, fun experiences. First, ident- understanding and unpacking what does it mean to be a coach? And what is that as a service provider? So if you are a coach, uh, you should be doing one of three things. You should either be helping a person hold accountable to a goal that they set out for themselves through one form or the other. You should be transferring information and knowledge that would improve that person and help them in pursuit of their goal. And thirdly, you should be holding space with that person. You should be meeting them where they're at and helping them recognize that this is where they are and here are some of the things that who this is valid like this is real right and if you're not doing one of those three things then what are you doing and if you're going to say you're a coach to what end and that that's that's where these entrepreneurs come in and and there's a big big surge in the coaching influencers right now which is kind of a big it's a big thing and uh for nerds like me and i it's a privilege to be in this generation right now because sometimes I'm so angry (laughs) at the way coaching is done, but it's so humbling. It reminds me of like, so now I arrive at a time where I'm kind of coming and developing my skills as a professional coach and coaching has never had the worst reputation than it does now, right? It's like the worst. No one wants to call themselves coaches and the people who want to call themselves coaches are sus as hell. And like, that's interesting. And that's a tough time to be a coach. At the same time, um, running a painting company is not a very sexy business and it's still a very rich entrepreneurial experience. So to call myself a coach, to own that title, to help define that, to try and be an example in an industry of service providers is really cool and that's that's kind of where i'm at right now is if you're going to be a coach how do you coach right so absolutely let's, let's talk about that yeah and let's dig a little bit into that because myself you know i'm sort of into that coaching world now we are i coach uh almost 11 12 businesses at this point so i'm trying to of course grow my clientele but what mm-hmm. should 
uh, for you to call yourself a coach, a real true coach, what would you say you should be having from an experience standpoint, from in terms of value standpoint, you can add to your clients? What should you be really having before you can really say you're a coach? Well, technically, uh, apparently, according to the reality of our internet world, nothing. There are no requirements that would, would, would allow you to call yourself a coach, right? So when you have a loose term like coach, that means that it's up to the people who call themselves a coach to define that and to create a standard, right? And then from that to, and then, then we're just like everyone else, we have to really distinguish ourselves as a profession and kind of and kind of create a journey that, that does that, right? So um, there, are, there are obviously trainings, official formal trainings that you can get as well, certifications that would help you uh, both develop your skill as a coach and help you kind of certify that you are qualified to do the form of coaching that you're, you're hoping to specialize in. The International Coaching Federation offers accreditation and essentially how it works is it's a network of different coaching training programs that when you take lessons through those programs, they count as credits. Once you've collected enough credits, paid and pro bono hours, they certify you, right? Um, and that's that's the question: Is do you want to do you want to pay for that? Right, that's an expensive investment. And then when I when I unpack the history of that, well, the ICF is it's not a, a three hundred year old institution of elite people. It's just a it's a bunch of white people <laughs> who decided to create the like it was like the first people who were like, yeah, we're coaches now. Let's let's define coaching. So. Um, I think that there is a treasure trove of good coaching resources in the education that we have in the certifications that you can pursue. I think that going for those certifications is incredibly important because we need to be up to date and we need to know the history of our coaching experience so that way we can grow on it and like really begin to develop it. But at the same time, it really is up to us today to decide what that coaching should look like, because uh, quite frankly, a bunch of white people who only developed coaching as a means to improve corporate businesses should be questioned. Coaching is so much more than that, that now, and it was before corporate America made it a big industry. So mm-hmm, yeah, sure. it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult question. It is, it is a very interesting question, and I appreciate unique insights. I like us to change our, the the conversation here a little bit into uh, you know you and your work in Malaysia you moved out of North America which would have been a huge culture shake a culture shock uh, especially coming from myself who I moved from you know Nigeria to to Canada myself so I do understand that uh, what has that process looked like for you moving to a completely new country and uh, I also want you to share a little bit about your role with Mind Valley uh, as you work in Malaysia. Sure. Um... Well, the, the process of working with uh, or kind of moving around started with some work I did with some friends and uh, doing that digital nomad lifestyle fad. So the traveling around, attempting to run a business online and uh, really kind of sinking your teeth into what is it like to define yourself online and run a business like that. And that was a fantastic experience. I, I got a chance to travel uh, to uh, so many countries, dozens. Um, and through that experience, I, I found uh, my current partner, my wife in, in Malaysia. I met my uh, wife in Malaysia and decided to apply for, for Mind Valley. And Mind Valley is essentially a uh, a very advanced uh, 
organization that specializes in improving human consciousness. And that's a, it's a mouthful, but essentially it's the Netflix of personal productivity. And if it, if it works on developing your self-awareness or if it is a topic that uh, discusses well-being and community and connectivity, Mind Valley teaches it. So everything from how do you break up consciously to how do you meditate to making sure that you do better business to coaching, leadership, the whole, whole everything. And uh, they've been around for about 17 years. They're a large tech company. They do around 70 million in revenue each year. And the work that I'm currently doing at Mind Valley is I'm helping them develop Mind Valley for business. And that's the organization and training that was the library of resources that's built for the general public to be custom made and, uh, and kind of integrated into different corporate training. So I work with organizations like PwC, uh, Duracell, all sorts of different people around the world in getting Mind Valley kind of built into their teams. And I'm kind of the, the, the tour guide of that process where I introduce the, the equipment and the gear and the technology, get their teams moving through it on a regular basis and, and making sure that that's all functional. So it's a very cool job. Yeah, they're very nice and I'm very excited about uh, your work in that space. Um, what, has, uh, what have you learned working for working in Asia, I guess, and how that compares to working in North America, what has been sort of the difference in, in approach to working in, in such different continents? Well, I think that one of the biggest shocks uh, is that working online is not the same for everyone, right? Um, what I mean by that is you have an entire industry of freelancers and contractors who work online who are just as much entrepreneurs as the people who run Instagram influencer culture businesses, right? And yet the world and the economy online treats those groups and those communities very differently. And that was, that was shocking for me personally. It was very, uh, very frustrating to realize that the internet doesn't treat everyone the same. Um, at the same time, now more than ever is a very exciting time to work for global companies, right? Like it's very cool that uh, three of my colleagues are currently in Mexico. One of them is on an island like that way, 300 kilometers. And I've, I've done most of my work from my house, right? So working from Asia is both not different at all than working from Canada. And the, uh, the, the getting to know the community, the process of learning different businesses is also surprisingly just kind of like, oh, here it is. And you're like, oh, it's exactly like it is in Canada. Um, in Asia, they say same, same, but different. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very, very interesting. And I guess you know, with the pandemic, it's really changed the game a little bit in terms of how work is done. For someone sure. who say, you know, they're interested in uh, moving to another country, like a lot of people have that goal or vision. I just want to move to, you know, uh, you know, I want to move to Korea, or I want to move to Thailand or whatever, and just work there. How should you start adjusting or thinking about that lifestyle, considering we're in a pandemic and considering everything is changing, and, you know, it's very different from how we've known it. What would you say should uh, someone who is having those kind of thinking should how, how should they start approaching that right now with all these changes we're experiencing? Well, do you like that's that's a tough one, because again, I get, I get uh, I've learned so much on the other side of it that mm -hmm. won't be advice that people will typically listen to before you leave. Right. So in learning about traveling, I realized that being a global entrepreneur, digital nomad is a trope. 
right? We're, we're a type. So that means if you're planning on putting a backpack on and then going around the world and being like original, you're not original. That is done a million times. It's a very humbling experience to think you're the coolest person on an island to realize there's lots of other people who are doing exactly the same thing as you. So that's one thing to consider. Does that mean that traveling the world isn't a worthwhile and fulfilling experience and you shouldn't absolutely take a kick in the can? Absolutely not. Like it, that's, that's going to be good. Um, with coronavirus, set your expectations accordingly. You are like your dreams of traveling the world do not supersede the safety of thousands and millions of people. So if you can be responsible in the way that you plan your traveling and try not to be a jerk, right? Um, I think that the world is going to be a very different place for a lot of different countries uh, in the next six to 10 years. And we need to recognize that just because coronavirus is, uh, is potentially coming to an end, that doesn't mean that there is an opportunity for other pandemics in the future, right? These things are going to continue happening. Um, which means that I think that a lot of, a lot of my, my, my old community of global digital nomads caught themselves into some pretty serious predicaments of being stranded in countries that they weren't necessarily expecting when the coronavirus hit. So that thing can happen. If you're planning on going out of all of the things that could happen, you could get stuck. Mm. And, um, and that, that's, that's part of it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, interesting. Uh, I hope that there is no pandemic in under 100 or so years. But uh, of course, this has been a, a very interesting wake up call considering the last pandemic was in 1918, I believe. Um, but Jeff, uh, thank you for sharing you know, about your experience, that nomad lifestyle. I think it's a very, very unique, interesting lifestyle. I don't think it's for everybody. Certainly not for me. I'm more of a very homey person. I think I remember the last time I was in Europe uh, for my vacation, I was just waiting to go back home because you know, after five, six weeks, uh, I was like, damn, I want to get back to my home. There's the street, there's strategic advantages of doing both, whether you work a full-time job or run a business, like moving about makes for great Instagram photos, but it's strategically a pain in the ass when it comes to internet. So um, yeah. That it has its pros and cons both ways. Mm -hmm. Now, Jeff, uh, one of the uh, ideas that has really, really been important um, when you and I had a conversation, uh, we'll talk about we'll talk about that shortly. But I wanted to start out with um, the idea of presenting yourself as a thought leader versus being a public intellectual. I know when we were preparing for this conversation, <laughs> this was something that had been on your mind. Can you just share a little bit with our listeners who do not understand what does to mean <clears throat> and uh, and why they should think about something like that sure sure so yeah this is definitely not my information like this is this comes from an author named dresner and a book called the ideas industry but it's it's just an understanding that when your work is in education and when you're looking at developing material that makes a difference there are kind of two different roles in the ideas industry and the book goes on and essentially if we were to set that all aside for a moment you have to decide what type of work that you're going to do in in your career if you're planning on sharing ideas online right option a is a public intellectual would be someone who consistently kind of reviews and offers useful educational labor or study review labor 
So if a person spends 13 hours reviewing an application for you and posting that information online, so that way you don't have to do that, that research work, and then they show up on a Twitter feed and say, no, this, this app is complete garbage, that would be an example of a public intellectual at work. They are doing a specialty and a service for the community by offering up information and calling out shoddy products and shoddy ideas, right? A thought leader typically makes their profit off of selling the next big idea. Um, this makes you kind of reliant on making sure that that idea kind of stays true for long periods of time. You're not likely to surrender the idea that made you millions of dollars. So if that idea is ever proven wrong, you're going to die on that horse, right? As I started kind of creating content and learning what it means to kind of run a business online, I caught myself feeling uncomfortable with the way that people try to make profit on their ideas and on their words. Because when you work on things like YouTube and when you work on writing, you, you're, you're compelled to write things that will get the most clicks, that will pay you the most instead of creating resources and research that actually do your client's service. And that was the kind of the understanding of my coaching work as well. Um, so I'm, I've created a company uh, or it's, it's being launched this year called Coaches Chowder. And the idea is that to some capacity or the other, the other, the material, the tools, the resource should have done work for the people, right? You're, you're doing legwork for those individuals. You don't always have to come up with crazy ideas. You can do extra research. You can, you can actually just be a coach. You can just do coaching. And I think that in the next few years, something that's going to be a big priority for myself is, is actually not having to be the answer to the solution right? Especially in, with guys in business and you're trying to compete. I think it's so easy to feel like you have to build the business that solves the world's problems when quite frankly, we could use one or two more coaching businesses that just did a good job, mm. right? Mm. So <laughs> I'm going to kind of create a coaching business that just does a good job. I'm not anticipating uh, building the next like thought idea that revolutionizes the internet. But I know that when people come to my, my, my digital lounge, that they'll be able to kind of like learn something mm. that there'll be a workshop where they can sharpen their skills. And that idea was rooted when you, when you caught me in our conversation, I was in the middle of like, Oh, cool. That there's someone who had identified these two groups of people. And I resonated with that, that ickiness that I felt with being stuck always hawking your four hour work week idea for the rest of your life. So I think Tim Ferriss regrets it too. He always, mm. he's always, whenever you listen to him years later, he's always like, yeah, that four hour work week shit kind of haunts him. Right. Mm. And then in his following podcasts, you really, he really built a fan base after he started doing work, the work being his interviews. And that was, that was, he was the pioneer of big, big long-term podcasts. Right. So mm. Fascinating. So uh, almost like I feel based on just listening to that explanation, um, you know, the place of maybe a little bit of pride, uh, a little bit of arrogance as entrepreneurs. I mean, you have to have some sort of self-confidence, which sometimes might border into arrogance or pride to be a good, solid entrepreneur. And the place of that when it comes to, you know, uh, having big ideas or just delivering a service and just how to balance both. I'm not sure if that makes sense, but when I think about the points you made, I think about humility and just doing a good job, doing a good service, as opposed to uh, focusing on being the most, uh, the loudest thought leader or being someone who has these big grand ideas that everyone has to listen to. I don't know. 
Well, there's there's most certainly the temperance, but there's also the way you deliver your content, right? Showing your receipts, showing your work, showing who you're researching, showing the experience you the, the experiments you've ran, if it's correct, delivering honest testimonials, explaining how many people fail your processes, explaining why people fail your processes, all of those things if your priority was the improvement and success uh, to improve the highest success ratio of your clients, that would be information that you would share, mm. right? And it's very easy to tell by the amount of information people share what, what their priority is, right? And uh, I think that that should be pushed into question or that should be discussed, right? For sure. In the last couple of years, one of my recent uh, big mantras that I think I've started to really build my career around is the idea of uh, delivering more in value to people than what you ask for in payment. And I think for me, that was always the case. What I'm giving you, is it making you a little better than when you first initially met me or heard me? And uh, then what I'm asking for in payment, which is you know, your attention or you know, being a client of mine, you should be leaving that interaction feeling much, much better uh, than feeling like, oh, this guy is not all these cool ideas and blah, blah, which is kind of what you're talking about maybe in some way. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's, it's, um, it's the difference between saying a process is an example of something that you could do would be here are some options versus instead of uh, the language that sounds like you have to do it this way. This is how I did it. This is how everyone does it. This is how successful people do it. Right. That's that would be uh, you can kind of feel the difference. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Cool. Um, I always love having all this big, you know, uh, what's right? What sort of vague stuff, stuff in our heads? Uh, but Jeff, <laughs> one of these, uh, one of the uh, things I wanted to talk to you about also was the idea of emotional intelligence and soft skills. Way way back, Ellie, when you were my, I think you were in your first year of coaching as a business as a coach, first year of coaching, and I was in my second year of business. Uh, I think you really were one of the key people who really helped me understand this world of uh, soft skills and emotional intelligence and how that can truly make a massive difference to one's business and even personal life and that really was like a huge you know big eye opening revelation for myself what would you say is the place of the softer skills and the emotional intelligence in success in career whether as an entrepreneur or whether just as a normal you know, career professional and even in your personal life what would you say is the importance of those skills well it's it's not it you can't not like they're a part of who you are right so soft skills are starting to be developed and updated. The language and the vocabulary that we're using to describe these types of skills is starting to change. Um, new descriptions such as vertical and lateral skills are starting to be developed to kind of complicate and, uh, and make the, the black and white kind of binary EQ, IQ definitions a little bit more nuanced. And that's important, right? So, uh, First things first, just with the language, by the time it becomes popular, usually it's outdated, right? So we always have to be kind of cognizant of when we're getting these ideas because it could be a 30-year-old idea that's changed five times since we've looked at it and just discovering it now, right? And it doesn't make it any less useful because that was the first stepping stone on visualizing an idea, right? So the importance of soft skills, let's get to that, that answer. Soft skills are uh, 
typically described as skills that are related to emotions and empathy awareness. They're less tangible. And in kind of new updated uh, thinking, we think of them as lateral skills, which kind of fit across lots of different roles. So for example, leadership and problem solving and conflict resolution could be used in lots of different roles. So they would be soft skills or lateral skills. And then you have your verticals, which is your technical abilities as you get more specific. If you were playing Skyrim, it would be your skill tree, the higher you get up on your skill tree. So are they important? Yeah, they're absolutely necessary, right? Because they're a part of everyday interactions, uh, working on an emotional sense of awareness, developing uh, an emotional awareness is incredibly important. And um, I think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done on communication, on being able to clock yourself, especially with men, um, because we have a bigger responsibility and currently we're kind of being called to action in terms of, of how we should be behaving moving forward too. So super, super, super important. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, very important. And uh, you mentioned a couple of things that I just want to briefly touch on, even though as the clock takes a little here. Yeah. Uh, you talked about self-awareness, uh, regulation, and empathy. In my, in my experience, I consider those to be almost uh, the three pillars of uh, if you want to start your journey into you know, that realm of, uh, of soft skills and emotional intelligence. How would you say someone can improve their skills and awareness? Because I feel like the root of everything is awareness. You don't know how much you don't know. Like You don't know how much you have to improve your skills. And if you don't have some level of awareness to see where you're lacking. Um, I, I, so just for the sake of our listeners, how would you say you should approach you know, those skills and awareness? Well, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to have a video out that talks about our old friend and the tool, the transition curve, right? So uh, definitely like check out Elizabeth Gubler-Ross on death and dying. And then after you check out that information, go and find John Fisher. 2012 and he's the guy who turned it into a business resource which is what we know as the transition curve but essentially uh, the very first thing that you need to know about emotional awareness is accurately and rely reliably and consistently being able to say this is how i'm feeling right now <laughs> right and if not to other people then at least to yourself because if you're able to accurately define how you're feeling right now you're able to ask some follow-up questions like how did i get here and where do I want to go after this, right? And the transition curve gives you a very, very basic framework for identifying where you are. Now, um, the transition curve is completely dated. It was also uh, kind of adopted from Elizabeth Gubler-Ross's the, the Five Stages of Grief. And there's some things that need to be updated and worked on, which I would love to have coaches kind of talk to now because I'm going to be updating it myself and kind of saying, hey, I think this is how it should change. But if you can use something like a framework of where your emotions are on something like the transition curve, it allows you to uh, have a simplified vocabulary. So when you don't have the language to properly describe how complex emotions can be, you can say, this is kind of generally where I'm at. And that is a really good stepping stone for building your emotional awareness, as well as building your ability to communicate what your emotions are with other people. And that can make a big difference. So that's, that would be my recommendations. Check out the transition curve or check out some of those names that I just, just mentioned. 
Totally. And you know what? I really appreciate that insight because when I think about the relationship between the transition curve, which was something that I was very much exposed to very early in my business career and understanding where you are, why you are feeling what you're feeling, I think it makes so much sense when I look at the overlapping similarities. And yeah, our listeners should definitely check that out. Now, uh, when it also comes to uh, regulation, so no, it's one thing to understand where you are. It's one thing to have that awareness and understanding. And you can say, okay, this is how I want to move forward and whatnot. It's another thing to really put those uh, volatile emotions in, in check when you're trying to accomplish a goal or when you're, you're trying. So if you're dealing with some issues and you're trying to face a client, you know, all you're dealing with doesn't, you know, that should be left where it is. How do you approach the idea of regulation and really keeping some of those uh, emotions in check? What are your thoughts around that? Well, regulation is super, super complicated. Mm-hmm. And anyone who starts like, this is, a, this is a good question to highlight. And this is a, like a really good, good place. Like if I was writing an article of things to watch out for from coaches, this would be one of them is like, how do you respond to questions like, how should people emotionally regulate their, their emotions? Mm. People are very different. Right. And and now that we're starting to better understand uh, neurodiversity, we're starting to recognize that people uh, who fall into different uh, areas on the spectrum actually are more sensitive to different different elements of stress, right? So what are you supposed to tell people like that? Is it just something along the lines of you gotta be as tough as the next person, right? Which means that emotional regulation is different for everybody, which means we need to have an entire box of approaches for helping support people in times of emotional duress and times of extreme emotions. We need to have an entire language and school and study system and community and infrastructure to, to learn about this. So I can't say here are the five tips to better emotionally regulate and compartmentalize. I think that there's a whole bunch of different things that people should be doing. Uh, therapy, they should be learning how to create outlets for their emotions. They need to learn on developing their vocabulary for describing their emotions so that way they can communicate them. They might need to have coaches support them through these journeys so that way they can set goals and start actively kind of achieving new milestones in their growth and their learning. Um, it's an entire project that requires a network of ideas. If someone says, how do you like emotionally regulate? It's just like, it's a system. It's like a customized care package that's built around you. It's a, it's a lot of different work that goes into to doing exactly just that. <laughs> Fascinating. I think you look at, you're looking at it from a, a massive macro scale, which you know, is completely important, especially as regulation is a skill that can be applied anywhere in your personal life, in business, anything really. But when I think about regulation, uh, I'm always thinking about uh, what's the long-term goal? Like what's the long-term goal here? So if it's you know, in business, which is typically where I get to talk about it a lot, I'm thinking, okay, so right now you're going into a meeting uh, with an employee. What's the goal of this meeting? Even though there's a conflict and you're upset about some situation, are you trying to solve the situation or are you trying to just talk about the conflict and just be in that conflict? And, uh, you know, even in your personal life with spouses or, you know, with uh, anyone who is important to you, what's the goal of this interaction? And for me, I, I feel like the goal uh, really determines how you approach uh, in terms of regulation because, you know, you want to make sure it's your actions are consistent with those goals. But I definitely see a point about, you know, it being more complicated than that, uh, of course, when it comes to the broader scale. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely something that uh, we need more, more work and research. If, and- if I were to like isolate it to an individual person and they were to say in a bar, it's like really quickly, how can I emotionally regulate better in pursuit of meaningful goals? My response would be, 
you need to start looking at what your current response systems are. You need to start collecting feedback on what's working and what's not. And then you need to actively do research and investigate what are ways that you could start pursuing more meaningful ways of achieving your goals, mm. which, which is, which you might be surprised because sometimes it means you need to stop oppressing emotions in some instances. And in other times it might mean you might, you need to oppress some emotions to stay focused. Right. Which is why I can't say like, even just the word, how do you, how do you kind of keep focused is like, well, sometimes you need to let go of emotions. So like, I can't, I can't, it's not as cut and dry as suppressing emotions and pursuit of goals. Right. So very true. Very yeah. true. I, I definitely see, see that perspective. Well, uh, last questions uh, here before I let you go, Jeff, uh, and it's you no know, dealing with the fact that we're in a pandemic and uh, the pandemic has affected every way we do things and relate and work. Uh, I'm just very curious for yourself, how has the pandemic affected you from a work standpoint and I know you've kind of talked about it throughout our conversation but more importantly how have you been able to keep performance levels up because a lot of people are uh, depressed you no know, despondent kind of just all right everything is horrible I don't want to think about this anymore and they can't find that extra gear of motivation to get things done because in the end at the end of the day you know people who are going to move ahead are taking this time to really build and focus on what they want to do and try and add some value in some of what it does to themselves or to others or to a business they're trying to grow and by the time the pandemic is done you know they're going to be so far ahead how can you move ahead or take full advantage of this time we find ourselves in? Or how have you taken advantage of this time we find ourselves in? Sure. The, the, the type of coaching that I do, due to the nature and, 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 and some of my philosophies, often mean that I don't necessarily always prioritize performance and productivity. So in, if someone were to ask me, how have you leveraged 2020 to make the most productive year? I would, I would question whether that was ever a priority of mine. It was never a part of my calculations to make this the most productive year, but it has been very productive for me. And a part of the reason why it's been so incredibly productive for me is because strategically there is opportunity in every circumstance, right? There's opportunity in, um, in staying home for 365 days and being able to finally put some time on a regular basis into projects that you might not typically have the opportunity to because you have a commute, right? You have the ability to do things like train pets to be incredible musicians. You have the ability to spend time with family and work on homes and crafts projects. You have the ability to do podcasts and build new businesses. So every position, every timeline has an abundance of opportunities. And if you can, if you can take the time and really, really kind of find some gratitude in that, you might be able to leverage that. However, if you're going through a hard time right now because of 2020, you have to make space for that. It's an incredibly difficult year. There's no kind of motivating yourself out of difficult challenges. Uh, it's real and it's it's a big struggle and, and and that's important to recognize and make space for as well. Mm, absolutely. I think again that kind of ties back to some of our conversations about awareness and uh, sometimes awareness is not just about uh, you know trying to overcome or or, or uh, dump that feeling. Sometimes it's sitting in it, recognizing it, understanding that okay, this is a real thing and it's affecting <clears throat> me in some ways, and that can be a good way to move forward. Well, one example I can give you is a client of mine is currently stuck in Mexico 
with her family when her initial intentions were to make it to Southeast Asia to, to begin her new, a new project, right? And uh, she hasn't been home in Mexico for about three years because she was doing work in the United States. And then she, she went home for the holidays and then was frozen in there because of the of coronavirus and was been there for eight months when she was planning on taking off again. And it's completely mucked up all of her plans, right? And one thing to remind her of was, I had to, I had to say, was, was your intention to go back home in the next three to five years after you moved to Southeast Asia? She's like, no, probably not. I've often traveled for five to six years at a time and come back and visit for a month. Mm. I said, recognize that you being frozen here grants you opportunities that you would never have had had you been left, right? Mm. You are currently in your house with your parents for a time period that was never available to you now only because coronavirus is here. So when coronavirus stops being here, you will leave and you will probably not be back for five years. So you will never see your father at 68. You will never see your cousins at 12 and 13. You will never be here ever again, mm. right? So it's up to you to use that time if you want to for something incredible, right? Yeah. And that's, that's where you find motivation. That's where you can, you can really find, find some ways of kind of changing 2020 to mean something. So at the end of the day, it's all in our perspectives, how you decide to see the situation. You could always see the worst in situations, or you could decide to be optimistic and see the best in situations. Um, thank you for uh, your insights, Jeff. It's been such a pleasure having you on the show. I've really, uh, as usual, enjoyed our many philosophical nature of our conversations. Uh, it's been so much fun. Thanks for coming on the show, Jeff. Cool. Thank you so much for having me, David. I, uh, it's good to see you. Absolutely.